Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they they kind of synthesize, they 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 summarize the whole life of Christ. Even the Gospel of Luke, he is the one that he says he put it all in chronological order. So the Gospel of Luke, when you read through Luke, you're you're when it says three days later, it was three days later. When this happened, then that's it happened before that and after that. Matthew goes into all of the genealogy. Luke goes into genealogy of, I think it's Mary. Matthew goes into the genealogy of Joseph. I might have those reversed. I didn't look it up. But um, they're covering all kinds of detail. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written within about 60 years or less of when Christ died on the cross. So these, these, they were told as recent as like a child would tell the story about their parents and talk about all the things their, their dad did, all the, all the stories that their mom did, what it was like growing up. It was, it was that distant away. And, you know, um, Matthew was one of the disciples, so he was there. You know, he was Levi, the tax collector. Mark was a cousin to Peter, and he was there, but there are also some things that he wasn't there and that he got from Peter. Luke wasn't there at all. He was not one of the disciples. He was not one of the twelve. And a lot of the things that Luke wrote came from research that he did after Jesus died on the cross, maybe even after Paul was knocked off of his horse and saved. Which Paul had his conversion on the road to Damascus. He went back home to Tarsus for 14 years and laid low. And so Luke's gospel might have even been written after that. But Luke, we also know from some of the things that Luke tells that he talked to eyewitness witnesses, eyewitness witnesses, <laughs> firsthand witnesses, and, um, and he may have even talked to Mary and asked and asked Mary questions and had had a conversation with her. So that puts all of that in context. John was the disciple that Jesus loved. That's how he describes himself in the gospel. And John wrote this after Paul was already on missionary journeys. Think that through for a minute. The Apostle Paul, the book of Acts is already in progress or maybe even done by the time the Gospel of John is written. But it's written by a guy that was there. He's the only disciple that is mentioned standing at the cross watching Jesus be crucified. Isn't that wild? So you're talking about a guy, you know how, um, I don't know if you saw Forrest Gump, right? So Forrest Gump, the reason why that movie is so fond to everybody, because it's, it covers so much of the American historical experience. It's like, wow, Forrest Gump was the reason why the Have a Nice Day Smiley Face t-shirt exists. And, you know, Forrest Gump was there when Nixon got killed. You know, I mean, just the whole... Who could have 
who could possibly have a life like that, right? Well, the Apostle John, oh my gosh, I'm comparing John, St. John to Forrest Gump. He was there, right there for all of the big deals. He was one of the first guys there on Easter morning. He was the only guy there on, when Jesus was on the cross. He was close enough to Jesus when Jesus spoke to John from the cross. I mean, and, and like, not just generally speaking, Jesus was like, John. Wow. So he writes the Gospel of John from that perspective, from that influence, from the influence of he knows how it's all going to end, from the influence of he probably knew about Paul, and he probably knew the good fruit of Paul's ministry. He probably knew about Barnabas. He probably knew the, the long-term game of Peter in Jerusalem. So with all of that context, he writes the Gospel of John. The other thing that he's doing is he's not writing the Gospel of John to Jewish people to convince them of anything. Because he's already seen Peter and he himself, John, standing up in the book of Acts talking to the religious leaders, right? He's more writing it to the Greek world because he knows this is bigger than Israel. This is bigger than Jerusalem. So he's addressing the Greek world and he addresses the Greek world on the Greek world's terms. And he immediately starts speaking like a Greek thinker would speak. And so, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us normally when we read it as 21st century Americans. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Nobody talks like that, right? That's kind of confusing. Well, the thing that he's talking about and the thing that he's referring to and the thing that he's, he's drawing on is this idea of the logos or the logos. And it's a Greek word and it's what they translate here as the word. And we're going to get, like, if you give me, like, maybe four minutes, we're going to go hardcore philosophy 301, and we're going to get real heady for a minute, okay? So Aristotle was into the first cause, and the first cause is the thing that caused everything and made everything happen. And the word that he used for that was the logos. And so when you see a bronze statue, Aristotle would look at that bronze statue and he would say, what caused that bronze statue to be? Is it the bronze? Well, no. I mean, it's made out of bronze, but the bronze didn't cause that bronze statue to be. Was it the mold? The, the mold that was made, I'm giving it away a little bit, that the bronze was put into, did the mold make that statue? Well, no, the mold wasn't the first cause of that statue because the mold had to be made. And so that mold was made by a sculptor. And the sculptor had skill and wisdom and vision and, and an idea of how to create this thing. And so the sculptor made the mold and poured the bronze into it and that made the sculpture. So is the sculptor person the first cause? And Aristotle would say, no, 
Because the idea in that sculptor's head and the skill is what caused the sculptor, flesh and blood, to make the mold, to make the cast, right? This is like the house that Jack built, right? It goes on. The idea in the head and the knowledge would be the first cause. That's what brought all of this about. But even then, Aristotle says, but where did that come from? And that thing, that that idea and vision and skill and all that really ethereal stuff, where did that ethereal stuff come from? That came from the Logos. The Logos is the thing that caused everything, the, the, the reason that everything is. If anything is, the reason that it is, is the reason that it is, and that's the Logos. That's what they would say. So the Logos is the ultimate purpose of everything, the ultimate cause. This is all Greek philosophy. This is just what, what Greek philosophers taught. So then John is like, man, how can I explain Jesus, whom I love? who's more powerful than anything. I mean, he, in the beginning, was the Logos. In the beginning was Jesus. In the beginning was this first cause of all creation that, that nothing existed before it and it wasn't created. It's just the first primary cause. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things that were made, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything that was ever created. So last week, we take our eight-year-old, our 10-year-old, our 13-year-old, our 16-year-old, and our 18-year-old to the Children's Museum in Indianapolis. And we've got two hours before they close. So we do what any wise person does, and we get a map, and we go to the information desk, and we tell the lady, we've got two hours. What should we see? And she says, oh, you should go straight to the dinosaurs. So we go straight to the dinosaurs, and we get in there, and they've got like this laboratory of real paleontologists with like coats on and they're all looking at everything they've got a dinosaur sealed in in glass that still has the skin on it and there's like only four of those in the whole world and it's only there for a limited time we're all looking at it and then grace age 13 asks this super loaded question wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute so dinosaurs are real right because, I mean, you get this whole mishmash of what you're taught and what's real and what isn't real and how do you reconcile all of it and how do you put it all together. Caleb has no problem. Age eight, dinosaurs are real. They're going to eat me. I want to leave now. Right? That, I mean, he didn't say all those words. His actions said it. Right? His screams and dragging. Let's get out of here. I'm not interested in T-Rex's teeth that are that tall. So we get a little bit, we didn't do it that day, and, and we still have to do more follow-up. But this whole idea that everything was made, that God made. 
And that doesn't explain a lot, but it explains a, a, a good foundation. Because for everybody that can tell me that dinosaurs are a million years old, I can also say you're studying, you're, you're, you're vacuuming the floor that's underneath you. Because they seem that old with everything that we have to measure that we have invented that can measure things that are millions of years old. Does that make sense? Uh, all right, we're going to, gosh, I didn't mean to be so philosophy today, but we are going to do. So this guy named Schrodinger has this theory about a cat. And here's the deal. There's a cat in a box. And if you open the box, the cat dies. So the cat's in the box. How do you know if the cat's alive? You're stuck, right? Because as soon as you open the box, the cat dies. If you keep the box closed and you can't shake the box and you can't move the box and you can't hear anything in the box, the cat might be alive, but you just don't know. So whenever we put together evidence, we're stuck with creating our own tools to find that evidence, right? If you tell me it's going to be seven feet long and I don't have a ruler, all I have to measure with are my feet. But my feet aren't 12 inches long. So if I have to come up with a way of measuring it myself, it's going to get really hard. It's going to get messed up. So all that to say, Everything that's been created, God created. We don't have to worry about, did dinosaurs exist or not? Or were they real? Or how did the Big Bang happen? Or was it the day of creation? Was it a week? Was it seven days? If we can just get to the bare bones that God created it, that is a breakthrough. That's a big deal. Because if we know that God created it, we can really deal with it. Because for the most part, and this, this would make some of my friends really angry, it doesn't matter. Dinosaurs don't really matter. Because when I'm walking down the street and there's a kid in my neighborhood whose mom is gone and he's an orphan all day long on his own, learning how to live on his own, learning how to talk on his own, and he's not respecting people, and he's stealing stuff. But we talked to, um, I got a friend that talked to a lady, and she's looking for her son. And she said, if you see him, call the police. Because when he doesn't come home, he's out stealing. Now, in that moment, in that situation, does it matter if, where dinosaurs came from? Or when they came, right? We are hitting real life of a family with a kid that's hurting. And if I turn them away based on whether or not where dinosaurs came from or what was made and how things were created, I've, I've totally sidestepped the real problem. We had a lady come to the farm stand yesterday that's going to be evicted from her house in 10 days. She doesn't know where to live. She doesn't know where to go. And we did not present to her the facts that evolution isn't real. But we did talk about how God made everything. And God is in control. And God has made her landlord's heart. And we can pray that God would change the heart of her landlord. All right. All that big diversion. To say 
He was in the beginning. Jesus was there in the beginning. Everything was made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That doesn't mean everything's perfect, but I can have confidence that God can rule over anything. Because nothing was created apart from God's power, apart from God's abilities. Cancer, disease, depression. So depression is, is something God made that got broken a little bit, right? How we think of ourselves. God gave us an awareness of who we are and then sin and I don't mean like personal sin because I did bad things. Now I am going to reap depression. But just the fallenness of the world. God created us to have an ability to know who we are and to think of ourselves. And then the evil in the world twisted that to make it into depression. But God made, gave us the ability to think of ourselves. Gosh, I'm so heady today. I got to get on with this. So God made it. So just to encourage you as you face things this week, as you, as you deal with stuff, as you see stuff on the news, consider that there's nothing that was made that, that hasn't been made that God didn't make. It's mind-boggling. I mean, nuclear bombs, right? The whole whatever, whatever it is, whatever stretch it is. Now, he made it all. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life. There's a whole bunch of things that we think life is, right? You go on vacation, you sit by the beach, you drink out of a little pineapple, and what do you say? This is the life. There's times where um, I was... I was doing ministry, and gosh, you know, in one day, I, I talked to a guy that was thinking about killing himself. I talked to a person that was grieving someone that passed away. I had a guy that became a new grandpa. It was all happening the same day. And I was close to all these people. And then I get to have a Bible study with some guys, and just the word is alive. And I thought about John 10.10, where Jesus says, I came that you'd have life to the abundance, life to the full. And in Jesus is life, and that life is the light of men. And when Jesus is in your life, you have a capacity to take on all of that stuff. You have a capacity to, to, to mourn and to celebrate fully, deeply, passionately, wholeheartedly because you're loving with Jesus with Jesus' life in you. If you flip over to Romans 5:10. This is a fun this is a fun thing in the context of John 1. In him was life and that life was the light of men. Romans 5.10. Well, I'll go 5.9. Since therefore we've been justified by his blood, 
how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? If we've been justified by Christ, we're going to be saved. We're going to be rescued. We'll be saved. This is Romans 5.10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were reconciled to God. You did not get saved when you cleaned your act up and quit um, cussing and chewing and going with girls that doing, right? You did not get saved when you became a good person. You got saved when you were a sinner. And Jesus made you into a good person. So while we were enemies, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? We were reconciled to God while we were sinners by the death of Christ, his sacrifice for us. How much more so now that we are alive in Christ and he lives in us, shall we be saved by his life that, that is living in us, that is our identity? I remember one time I was telling a bedtime story uh, to the kids and I brought this up that, that Christ is now our life, that, that whatever life Dan Sullivan had has died and now the life of this is Galatians 3.22. Now the life that I live, I live by faith in Christ. And Christ is my identity. And uh, one of the kids is laying in bed and he goes, whoa, wait a minute. So I'm not my own. I'm like, you're not your own. Your life, you, your body is filled with the life of Jesus Christ. And his identity is in you. And that's how you can go before God and pray. And the kids lay in the bed. Wow. And I was just like, I'm done here. Good night. When we, we need to realize that every day. If while we were enemies of God, we were saved by his death, how much more so shall we be saved by his life? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you look through history, this is really exciting. Look through history at who made huge scientific accomplishments and who just came up with these brilliant ideas, and all of a sudden you find this path of Christians. You're like, what in the world? The guy, the guy that... In, uh, I'll say invented or discovered like the whole DNA thing and how DNA is structured was a monk and he's breeding uh, fruit flies and plants and discovers all of genetics. All genetic research goes back to this, this monk who's studying the Bible, reading, praying, and then doing scientific research. Anyway, the light shines in the darkness. God wants to do things. He wants to shine in you. He wants to lead you and guide you. And, and he wants to help you, his, his life in you. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That is true. Either, either that's true or the Bible's wrong, okay? 
So if we believe that the Bible's true, we believe the Bible's right, light, light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So whatever horrible thing you see on the news, whatever terrible, terrible story somebody tells you on the street, whatever thing your cousin calls you up and tells you about, darkness has not won. Darkness cannot win. Heard a guy at this conference and he said, for every Christian, death is behind you. And you have nothing but life ahead of you. Death is behind you. In this Galatians 3.22 again, I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I've got nothing but life ahead of me. This guy was talking to his 96-year-old dad. And his 96-year-old dad said, my best days are ahead of me. And he was all fired up. And he was like, I'm ready to go. You know, he was going for it. Whatever he was, I don't know the context of what he was doing. But darkness is not overcoming. Darkness has not won. Darkness will not win. Darkness has already lost. There are times where I got deep into all these theological debates with all these buddies of mine and I would go home and I would be so confused and I would lay in my bed about to go to sleep and I was so confused and I just didn't even know if Jesus was real I didn't even know what I could trust and I was like okay I'm going to go back to the basics let's just start with one okay Jesus I believe that you are the son of God and I would pray that over and over again I believe that you're the son of God I would believe that you came and lived a sinless life and died for my sins. I might pray that for 20 minutes. And then I would move on. I believe that you rose from the dead and lived forever. And do you know what happened? The darkness of confusion and the darkness of doubt and the darkness of despair that we can't even understand all this stuff. It's beyond us. All that darkness went away. And then I end up going to sleep just worshiping the Lord. I wake up in the morning worshiping the Lord. I might wake up in the middle of the night. I'm still worshiping the Lord. Because darkness has not overcome it. So sometimes it goes in that way. Sometimes it goes in a completely different way. Where there's a conversation at the dinner table. And somebody says, uh, oh yeah. I'm not like with your family. I'm talking with other people too, right? And somebody says, I'm going to go see a... a, uh, a witch doctor. No, a, uh, a palm reader. Witch doctor, palm reader. Come on. Going to go get my palm read tomorrow after lunch. Light shines in the darkness. Dark, darkness can't overcome it. You can just say, you know, sometimes people get possessed by demons after they go see those kinds of people. And just plop that sucker right there on the table. And then let everybody deal with that. Guess what? Darkness can't overcome it. Or even get even weirder. Be like, did you know Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, can speak to us right now at this dinner table better than a fortune teller? Because a fortune teller works for the devil, and that's the father of lies, so whatever you hear will be a lie. What do we do with that? Darkness can't overcome it. We don't have to be afraid of darkness. 
don't have to be afraid of darkness at all. I used to um, speak at junior high camp, and I had one talk about light shining in the darkness, and the darkness wouldn't overcome it. And I would put on these gloves, and I had a theatrical light that was like 220 volts. And I don't even know how bright it is. It's good. I never had like kids with epilepsy or something. It was, it was vicious bright. And we shut off all the lights in the whole place. And all the kids would hear is metal scraping as I was removing the safety mechanisms on this lamp. And it would be plugged in and just shine right down on the floor. And I would hold up that one light. And that light would shine into the crowd. And after being dark for a minute, and I would just be talking in the pitch dark, their eyes would be so big looking for light that I would actually lift this light up and kids would fall over. And people would just be like, oh, because it was so bright. And I would do that to show them your light shines in the darkness. And the darker it is, the brighter your light seems. This is all true, you guys. If, if this isn't true, we need to just shut down and go home. But if it's true, what are we going to do? The light shines in the darkness. Darkness is so obnoxious, isn't it? Darkness is so promoted and shown. Darkness is advertised. Darkness is bragged about and flaunted. Do you know you cannot buy anything that shows darkness? You can't make darkness happen. You just have to shade stuff from light. You, the only way you can do anything with darkness to make darkness is to try to block light. You can't generate it. We're already on the upper hand as children of the light. We already have the advantage. All we have to, it's kind of like the whole deal where 80% of southern Indiana calls themselves Christians. We, we don't have to be afraid of talking to somebody that's so lost that they've never heard the gospel. We can just assume everyone is. Everyone has and, and talk and talk about Jesus. We already have the upper hand. All right. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God and his name was John. This is so funny. You hear that and you think, oh, now we're going to talk about John the Baptist. Nope. <laughs> he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All right, I'm going to stop there for a minute. Lots more emphasis. Jesus is the light of the world. He shines light. That is not as big of a deal to, to us as it was to them. But I want to take you back 2,000 years when the only way you had light was if a lightning bolt flashed, which would last like a tenth of a second, or you had fire. 
And if your fire went out, you would have to go to your neighbors and hope their fire was still burning and borrow fire from them so that you could bring it back to your house to have light at your house. Light was a big, big, light was like oxygen. Well, no, we don't have a shortage of oxygen. Light was, was something very pro- protected and important. Um, there would be cities. So at the, at the city, at the, the, the county, not really the county seat, like the mayor's office, kind of the important part of the city, the head part of the city. There, at that point in the city, they would have a fire. And they would have a full-time staff working to keep that fire going. So that anybody in the city that needed fire could go there and get fire. Sometimes everybody in the city would have to go back and get fire from there. And that was where you, it was like, it was almost like Vectran. You know, imagine all of us having batteries, but there's only one place to charge the batteries up. And your whole house runs on batteries. That's how it was. If you want to eat, if you want to cook your food, you have to have fire. Your fire goes out, you got to go downtown, get some fire, bring it back, don't let it go out. And then start your fire in your house again. You keep your fire going in your house all the time. It doesn't matter how hot it is outside because if that fire goes out, it's going to be a whole lot of work. So all of this talk about light, I want you to imagine that light is life. Light, if, if the thing goes out, you're not eating breakfast. right? You're not going to eat in the morning. You, depending on what the climate is, you might not wake up in the morning because your whole house is so cold. Because this wasn't all desert. I mean, these are mountainous regions. It, it gets cold. So all that talk about light is also very, I mean, we can't just flip a switch and you know, forget to leave the lights on overnight, no big deal. No, light is a huge deal. So he comes into the world. The world was made through him, but he came into the world as a human, as a man. He wasn't just the creator. He was part of the creation. And his own people, the people that he descended from, didn't accept him. But all who, all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is pretty, like, we're kind of into our rights as Americans. And when you get into deep into, like, what a right is, it's something that you don't even have to prove to anybody. Right? Like, like if you got pulled over this afternoon, and a policeman said, show me your license and registration, and you show him your license and registration, and you said, why did you pull me over? And they said... I just wanted to see if you had your license and registration. You'd be like, what in the world, dude? I'm just driving. That's no reason to pull me over. Why? Because I have a right to drive here. It's A right is so fundamental that you don't even, it, when, when it gets, you don't even think of it being questioned. And then when things do get questioned that we wonder about, we say, I have a right to this. And that, that appeals to the most fundamental base level of why do I have a right to this? Well, I mean, there's no why about it. You just do. It's, it's just it's basic fabric here. It's a basic system of our being. I have a right 
to this. In our neighborhood, um, the, the alleys are gravel, and people drive, but they didn't, you know, somebody puts out their trash cans, they drive around the trash cans, and then they drive around the trash cans, and they drive around the trash cans, and they make a rut in the mud next to the gravel. And then somebody complains and calls the city, and they say the gravel has run out, and there's just these big dirt ruts. Bring out more gravel. So the city says, oh, there's ruts. We need to fill those in. So they bring a big old dump truck, and they dump gravel in those ruts. And then people put their trash cans out, and people dodge the trash cans, and they drive side by side in the alley, and they make ruts. And the people call the city, and they say, there's ruts in the alley. There's not enough gravel. So the city comes, and they dump gravel. And guess what happens? Half of your backyard becomes alley. Because nobody measured where the alley is supposed to be to tell the guy to move his trash cans. So when you go out and you put up a fence in the middle of the alley that's on your property line, the whole neighborhood says, what in the world are you doing? You can't put a fence down the middle of the alley. What do you do? Well, I have a right to my property. I have a right to my land, and this is my land, and you can survey it and call in the surveyor and look at where the alley is. And who wins? The person that owns the property, because they have a right to their own land. And then you got to work on getting the. This, that is actually a true story that's happening right now, oddly enough. So I say all that to say something so basic as a right that we use that. I love it that that's the word they use here. For all who received Jesus, for all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. At the most basic level of your being, God has made you his child. At the moment, it, there is not a list. You don't have to memorize a big speech. You don't have to uh, answer a whole bunch of questions. If you have received Christ, it is your right to be God's child, to be a part of his family. It doesn't say anything here that you have to stamp out wickedness, that you have to fast from idolatry. All of that will come. Back to Romans 5, 9, and 10, right? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. He'll remake us. He gave the right. What makes you think you can call yourself a Christian? I believe in Jesus. God gave me the right. He gave the right to become the children of God. We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It was God's idea, God's plan. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is where John plays his big, biggest card he's got, right? I have seen him. I know what Jesus smells like. I was that close. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. 
Hooray, now we're getting to John. Nope. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. We're going to talk about John the Baptist next week. That's why I'm skipping all this John stuff. From him, from his fullness, this is from Jesus' fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but Jesus has made him known to us. Jesus has seen God. When Moses, Moses was one of the closest people to God ever. And Moses said, show me your glory. And God said, okay, I want you to go get in this crack in the side of a mountain. I'm going to put my hand over you and I'm going to walk by and you'll be able to see the aftermath of where I was. And so God does that. And Moses gets to see the aftermath of where God was. Then they go into the wilderness and he goes up on the mountaintop and he, and he gets the Ten Commandments and there the Lord is seated and they eat before the Lord, but they're all afraid to look at him directly. They're afraid to look at the Lord directly. So much reverence, so much fear, so much power. They go into the tabernacle and there it says, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, Moses talked to God face to face. Like a man talks to a friend. That was the closest person ever got to God. Was Moses. And now Jesus has come from all of eternity past being with God like that. One and the same. In the same spot. Equal. And God, Jesus has come to show us God. He has brought grace and he has brought truth. Why is it grace? Because Jesus did not have to come. He could have left all creation to reveal itself, to reveal God to us. God could have said, I have made stars. I have made strawberries. That is enough for you to know that I exist and that I love you and that I have compassion on you. But not only that, I'm going to come. I'm going to come and I'm going to live among you. I'm going to, I'm going to be susceptible to, to stomach bugs. I'm going to have to work hard and sweat and be uncomfortable. And, and um, I'm going to grow up in a place that has huge infant mortality rate under an oppressive king. I'm going to live that life. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, but Jesus has made Jesus from the Father's side has come and made him known. From there, we have now put the whole Gospel of John in perspective. The whole Gospel of John is Jesus making God known. The unknowable God that none of us could go to unless we did this sacrifice and that sacrifice and we did it right and we did this thing and even then if I'm not a Levite I'm going to hand all this stuff off to the Levite and the Levite's going to go before God for me because I can't even get in the room I can't even get in the outer room that leads to the inner room to where God is to know God but now Jesus came out of all those rooms came to my house sat down in my 
in my dining room and reveals God to me. And so as we go on and as we read the Gospel of John, know that everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does, everything Jesus shows is all to make God known. So that you, so your neighbors, so your kids, so your acquaintances, so the stranger that you run into could also know him too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you have created the cosmos, that you have created germs and tiny little things that that you even would create them and give them freedom to do good or bad. That you are so complex that there are things that you created that we don't even know about yet, that we're still learning about. And Lord, that you always at any time can take control over your creation and make it do your will. Lord, we exalt and we praise your name and we do want to know you. You have gone to so much effort to make yourself known to us. We want to take a hold of that and we want to, to learn everything about you and get to know you the best we can. We want to be so close to you, God. So please bless this time in the Gospel of John that we're embarking upon. Bless our reading during the week and our prayer during the week as we seek after you. And we do ask you, Lord, make yourself known to us and give us the guts to respond and follow. Thank you, Lord. Amen.